Hey, this is Steph from Coffee Like Media. I'm so glad that you're listening to the Geopaths episodes. Wanted to give you some information on current projects that I'm doing. You can go over to stephfuccio.com to see all of the productions that I'm working on. There's two specifically I'd like to tell you about real quick that I think you might like. If you're curious about ChatGPT and other AI use for content creation, it's coffeelike.substack.com. In that newsletter, you will find the audio, video, and written form of all the episodes that I'm creating there where I'm experimenting with using ChatGPT for content creation purposes. Also, I'm venturing into sound design, doing my own meditation podcast. It's called Solo Work Life Meditations. And if you work from home alone or you're a solopreneur or freelancer, I think you'll find the topics and the vibe of the podcast episodes to be really soothing And of course, if you need help with any of your podcasting needs or know anybody that does, please send them over to me at stephfuccio.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-F-U-C-C-I-O. I do momentum calls where I help people get unstuck from their podcasting struggles and podcast audits and things like that. After seven years of content creation, I am very much so here for you to help you get your voice your stories and your messages out into the world in whatever way I can do that. Thank you so much for listening to Geopats and I look forward to hearing from you. Bye. Bill says, you're an expatriate. You've lost touch with the soil. You get precious. Fake European standards have ruined you. You drink yourself to death. You become obsessed by sex. You spend all your time talking, not working. You're an expatriate. See, you hang around cafes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Shannon, for returning to the new and improved Geopets podcast. Glad to be here. Yay. So can you give our listeners a snapshot of your expatness? Sure. Well, I live in Shanghai, China. We met each other, I believe, through Podcast Brunch Club, which I run here. And I've lived here seven years. And prior to China, I was in Spain for just some brief stints, kind of on and off for two years. And that was my first experience abroad, as far as living goes, before that, from the U.S., So yeah, I've had a little bit of everything and I work, um, I sort of do remote work, so I'm able to traverse countries in a way. And I suppose since we're doing The Sun Also Rises by Hemingway as two expats in Asia, the other lost generation, perhaps, who knows? (laughs) I I suppose I should do a quick summary of my own expatness. I left the US in 2003. These are the places I have lived in. Taiwan, Vietnam, Japan, Malaysia. China, and we'll leave it at that, and then traveled in different places also, on and off, mostly on, then off since 2003. And we're both currently in Shanghai, China, mm-hmm. although that may change in 2020. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Exciting things ahead. <laughs> I may be heading to Hemingway's second favorite or favorite homeland or whatever you call it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm moving to somewhere in Germany <laughs> early 2020. I don't think you know he didn't they didn't go to Germany in this book. Not in this. No, no probably in none probably, of his books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing no. So, A Sun Also Rises. It's Hemingway's first novel and based on very closely on true events and true characters. I think I was reading the foreword or the intro by his grandson, I think it is, and said originally he wrote it very much exactly like the events and even with the same names and stuff, but then he developed the characters 
in a different way. And, and he originally wrote it with the with a bullfighter hero and like really around bullfighting and then changed it to more of the story of the expatriates. Yeah, and Wikipedia is telling us <laughs> 1926 novel by, you know, Hemingway portrays American and British expatriates who travel from Paris to the Festival of the San Fermin in Pamplona to watch the, I'm like, manual zoom on the computer to watch the running of the bulls and bullfights. Initially, when we talked about reading this book, you mentioned the bullfights and I was like, no, no, that's another one of his books. But it is a very strong part of this book. Yeah, actually, it was interesting because one of the podcasts that we both listened to that summarized it a bit and stuff, they talked about how that to them it didn't seem so much around bullfighting but that people know it as that but that's because that was such an unknown thing especially at that time so it's, you know it's more unusual like the drinking part and the fishing part which mm -hmm. kind of take up more of it you know it's more commonplace for people so that it doesn't stand out as much but yeah he wrote a lot about bull i read death in the afternoon which is all in depth about bullfighting and bullfighters so he wrote a lot on that so he was a big aficionado he was. <laughs> and he made a really big distinction in this book about the characters that were and weren't aficionados and how important that was. So, okay, in our current expat life in Asia, what would be the equivalent of a something from the region or even just from China that people would be proud to be an aficionado of? Mm, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of traditional things like traditional martial arts and stuff, mm. but I don't know if people being aficionados per se. I feel like here in China, you meet people especially somewhat older people a lot who are and, and younger people getting back into it are into sort of just traditional Chinese culture things kind of having a revival maybe and but it might be like calligraphy or yeah Tai Chi or but it's not it's not like a common thread amongst all the but then again in I mean Spanish people of today it's also not a common thread there are still bullfighting aficionados but it's not as much part of the the life nowadays. And that's the thing that I tried to explain recently to someone who was an expat in Europe is that it's not as easy to slip into the culture in mm -hmm. certain European countries as it is to as a, as a Western foreigner in places like China and Japan. Like we always stick out no matter what, <laughs> no matter <Right>. how <laughs> fluent or knowledgeable we are about the culture. We're always kind of but we're always a noticeable entity. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. Yeah, I can't think of any one thing that can you think of anything in other countries you've lived in? Language is the thing that sticks out to me. But I think that's just because I was a language teacher for so long mm. that people that knew the local languages were sort of on a pedestal within our mm. teaching circle. Because we're like, oh, my gosh, well, you will know the answer to this. And we always picked their brains. And they were very proud that they could explain things. Yeah. But I, I think that's a me thing. I don't think that's a, a usual expat thing. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe it was more a sign of the times than it was of Spain versus China. Yeah, true. But it's still yeah. it's still in the small in the circle of people that are into bullfighting, like still in Spain. There is still very much like mm -hmm. that distinction, that culture around it. Because actually, one of my my landlady when I lived in Spain, her husband is a bullfighting aficionado. Has like these albums of the young kids that were in the bullfighting association. They live right above uh, above the ring in uh, Madrid, and it's it's quite interesting. Like it's still very much. But I don't know. Yeah, would expats get into that i mean i think 
expats and travelers sometimes go to learn a little bit about it, but they're not going to be a Hemingway aficionado <laughs> per se. I guess I'm, I am thinking of the Shaolin Temple now that you're mentioning that. No, but it's still not that many people that I run into that are so gung-ho about that. I don't know. But maybe it wasn't as many then. And it's still a thing there to go, like, mm-hmm. at, as tourists probably more than expat. I mean, not, and I'm going to say, I mean, some, a lot of people are very against mm-hmm. bullfights, but also just the running of the bulls still, yeah. it's way, way more popular with, I don't want to say just expats, like foreigners, mm-hmm. than it, you know, than it would have been back then. Uh, it's way more common for people to go. So, would you ever do that? I've been along the path, but I wouldn't do the running. I would maybe go there during it just to see the craziness, but I wouldn't do the running. We, yeah, we walked the path in Pamplona, and I also in the town where we first lived in Spain, Dania, they had something similar, and they they actually run the bull into the ocean at the end. That's kind of what they do. I mean, I th- I don't think he actually dies because I think he it's not like deep water, but that's kind of the end goal is like running him off the cliff into the ocean sort of it's not really a cliff we did have an acquaintance there that we met whose ex-boyfriend got very badly gored during that in dania really like three months in the hospital bad infection could have died oh my god kind of thing so yeah it's it's still a dangerous game to be playing with yes. these bulls <laughs> it is it is <laughs> there's a reason why we live in houses away from animals generally speaking okay so that part mm, don't know that there's a direct parallel but there definitely were aspects of the book that reminded me of different expat circles and different expat experiences in my time overseas that were not just 1926 oriented. Did you have any connections like that with the book? A little bit. It's one of these, you know, it's like a golden age thing. You always feel like, oh, it's not like that anymore or whatever. I mean, when they were, you know, having their kind of carefree drinking escapades, I was like, okay, there's been like hints of that maybe when I first lived abroad or whatever there's some sense of freedom i think freedom and creativity because they're also all writers and i think their ability to go to europe and write and pursue these journalistic endeavors and then also have all this fun and that com- that lifestyle combination that maybe they couldn't have had in the u.s i, I see that what do you think definitely think that <laughs> i mean I, I tend to over read and listen to things connected to the books after I finish reading it because I want to get different viewpoints on different things that people pick up on. And everybody talks about how much they drink in this book. And that just that feels like, if not the initial, then the beginning of a lot of people's expat experience or just of their beginning adult experience or of, I don't know, it it felt very familiar (laughs) in a lot of ways. When I lived in Hanoi, and not to give away anybody else's story other than my own, but so I will keep all names anonymous, there were definitely the women usually one at a time, but there was always a woman that was very similar to Brett, mm-hmm. where all the men like circulated around them like the planets hmm. do with the sun. <laughs> and she was always never interested in any of them, but everybody else and that kind of thing. And it, there was always somebody like that there. There was always the guy who was very blunt, but people liked him because he was so honest and fortright and, and, and decent and there for you in a pinch. Bars closed down at a certain time, but then you would just be stuck in that bar. So by the, you knew the time was coming, you made sure you were in the one place you wanted to be so that when they put everything down and turn the lights off and put the candles up you knew you were going to be there till morning Wow! and yeah, yeah. and and definitely <laughs> going from bar to bar to bar because the old quarter in hanoi is like a lot of downtown areas very very one one establishment after another so you would just kind of hop 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 and 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 do what you were going to do and it was a long time ago for me and i don't remember much more than that but i definitely remember 
a lot of people coming over for a year or two and that was all they did all the time. Yeah. And I dipped in and out of it and after a while I was like, okay, what else is there? I am here for the culture, not just for fun, but you need moments to detach too. Yeah. So it, it, it reminded me a lot of that. I had a lot of memories of the people, the personalities, the relationships, the drama and all that stuff. So that part definitely rung true. <laughs> yeah, it kind of was bringing me back to like all the everyone was into boozy brunches when we first moved to Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And I had a, like a younger friend crowd. So I would kind of you were talking about the bars closing down, I would be veering off at an earlier part of the night, but they would definitely stay out all night and a lot of these kind of things. So it was definitely it's definitely there's a freedom. I think, you know, that that people feel when they're living abroad. And then also I knew through some associations I dealt with, I knew a lot of, I'll use the term because people know it, but it's a bad term, trailing spouses. You know, a lot of people that came with their partners and I, I would go to some of these things because I have a flexible schedule. And a lot of the people would... It was a lot of lunches, long boozy lunches, and then going to another activity. You know, there was a lot of that uh, different than these characters because they were kind of young, working, but kind of the leisure class. <laughs> that was the leisure class, I think, here. Because that was the other difference, I think. Well, I mean, they're the leisure class, but they were working. But I mean, these, are these people all came from definitely like a, a privileged background, whereas the expat experience I've had, it's been a, a mix. I mean, well, I guess everyone does probably have a bit of privilege to be able to that's why we call them expats instead of immigrants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the money thing we were talking about before we started recording mm -hmm. it definitely leads into that. There's a lot of hinted at elements of the character's background that leave us to kind of just piece things together. Clearly, Paris at that time was a cheap place to live. It was destroyed by the war, yada, yada, yada. So it's not like Paris today, where they would need a significant amount of money to be there and do nothing or mm -hmm. be there and work, sort of. Right. But then they also hinted at receiving money yes. at different points. Oh, I should get a wire next week or something like that. What money things did you pick up on? Yeah, I know that Lady Brett Ashley, there's some trust fund. I mean, she has a title and there's some right. stuff. It seems like the money has you know, gone away or something. I know that when Hemingway was in Paris with his wife, his wife had a trust fund. They said it was like the, their poor time. They weren't bringing in, I guess, other income or he was, I mean, he was, he was writing stories, but but right. not counting on a regular income. So they were still living kind of like poor students, but I mean, they didn't have to feel that they didn't have a base. You know, they had a sort of a safety net, I guess. So I think it was kind of based on that. And I figured, I mean, they all went to universities and I think that was prior it wasn't that they went there was no GI bill or something so I mean that that wasn't common back then so they had to come from a background where there was some family money I think I effectively ignored a lot of the war stuff although obviously the lead character Jake went to the war and was should we say damaged mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> we're marked explicit so I mean I don't know why I'm being subtle about this because I don't fully know what happened but he he's unable to use his penis basically right i mean it's not functioning it's not yeah i have i have a feeling as i i, the, I read this again in the foreword or the introduction and he actually sp specifically said it, it seems like it might be psychological impotence more than anything else and then and it's really interesting because it's such someone was saying something about such a relevant book now because of PTSD, unfortunately, it's still very relative because the concept of the lost generation was that they had, you know, gone through all this at such a young age. And I don't know if there's something physical to it, but yeah, he doesn't really get into this. What? It was just Brett, him and Brett are, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. And yeah. it's like, well, why not? Yeah. You're in the back of a taxi together. You're clearly passionate physically towards each other. But no, 
what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the the grandson in the intro said something about he he didn't have a physical injury. So there's okay. or there or something. Nothing was you know. I don't know how he put it exactly. So it's quite interesting because yeah, you're right. It doesn't get into any real. It's not a war story, but you know it says a lot about the aftermath of war and it's so fun loving that you don't think you don't think of it like as destructive drinking, but yet if you think about it for a minute, you realize you know. And Hemingway was a famous self medicator. I have no experience with war, serving in the war, military. The closest I have is a brother that's in the military, but was never on the front line, so I don't know that world very well. But if they had been through a war, especially one that early on when it was more, was it face-to-face combat in World War One? Yeah, it was pretty brutal. Yeah. It so that, the still, it's still the war where the most people have died by far. Yikes. I think it's maybe more than all the other wars mm-hmm. combined. Yeah. yeah. So that's quite something to live through. So in my head, I think when I was reading the book, I was thinking, yeah, I get that. Trying to forget. Okay, I sure. But that wasn't everybody in the book, was it? How many of them went through the war? It was definitely Jake and did Mike go through? I no. think most of the guys were. I don't know. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. See, and that's part of this book is that <laughs> there's so much said and not said. Yes. <laughs> Which apparently he cut a lot out because apparently in his first draft, it was tremendously more heavy on details and he cut it to make it simple. And But there was a podcast that talked about that, right? So it was, Fitz, was it Fitzgerald's direction oh, yes, to cut yeah. that out? Yeah. So the money thing is slightly ambiguous. His injury or not injury, his inability to function, <laughs> ambiguous. The main, main characters. Can we do this yes. from memory? Should we try? Jake is the narrator. Yeah. Jake Barnes. I'm not doing it from memory. I'm looking at notes. <laughs> That's fine. And Brett is the woman. Yeah, Lady that Brett everybody Ashley. revolves around. Yes. Why was her name Brett? Do we? Is there a longer? I don't know. I don't know. That's yeah. a good question. Well, the person it was based off of was Duff, but Duff is probably a nickname. Still, Brett. It, so he wanted like a more neutral kind. She had like the man's haircut, so maybe he wanted a. How is Brett neutral? neutral? Are there any women named Brett? Probably. I don't know. So Mike was her fiance for some of the book. And then there is Cohen. Cohen. Robert Kahn, who, yeah, was a boxer that got a little obsessed with Brett. (laughs) (laughs) Ran off with her, then got obsessed with her. Bill Gorton was the other friend, the fishing buddy. And the matador was Romero. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. He sounded very cute. Was there another woman in the book anywhere? There was a woman at the very beginning when they were bar hopping that they were, yeah. Jake's um, companion? (laughs) I don't even know what to call her because she went away pretty darn fast. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. It was a fast life. It was a life. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so they pretty much all revolve around Brett to some degree or another, except for Bill. Did Bill and Brett ever meet? They were there together in Pamplona, yeah. So I did the book on audio, but I kept hearing people talk about the three books that the book was in. Mm-hmm. Did you feel a distinct shift from one to the next to the next? I didn't really feel a shift, but they are, I felt like it, I mean, it kind of goes with the travel things. I mean, I felt like, oh, they're going to another place. So it's another piece. So expats living in Paris in the 1920s went to Spain for bullfight. Yeah, they they watched bullfights. They didn't yes. do Running of the Bulls, did they? Yeah. I, well, they, they were, the, the, yeah, uh-huh. they were, they were definitely watching it from above. And I think, I don't know if they ran, but yeah, and the bullfights. And they, yeah, that's where it's funny because it's known as such a bullfight novel, but it really is not. The amount of words spent on bullfighting compared to other stuff is probably probably less. And I 
I have to admit that was my least favorite part. <laughs> I know there were tons of analogies to be made from it, but I really was just not even just grossed out. I was very uninterested. I felt like I was watching sports in my head and I don't like watching sports. I like doing sports and I like doing anything else, but I don't like watching sports. And to me, that those descriptions felt like that. Don't read Death in the Afternoon. Because I'm somewhat interested, I guess, because, you know, you go a place and cultural stuff. I don't want to say I got into bullfighting, but I got interested in, okay, let me un- try to understand more what this is about. Uh, and I read it and I'm not sure that I finished because I was kind of, it was so much. It was <laughs> so. So I remember their reactions to it. Because I think at one point, Jake tells Brett, no, don't look. Because I guess the animal was being, what do you even call it? When and they get usually uh, gourd is when the person ah yeah, okay actually. so it's just getting it's basically just stabbed yeah the, and he was like no don't look and eyes. she was like oh and she was really fascinated and everybody's yeah. horrified that a woman would be interested in this and i'm like well really how often do you see that i don't know that i would look away <laughs> i don't know yeah i mean she definitely broke womanly stereotypes <laughs> of the time it's interesting what do you think a modern day equivalent in china would be where would people go like it's expats living in Shanghai. Uh-huh. Where would they go for an exciting cultural event like that? Yeah. In Asia? Think of anything. <laughs> Do we live in the most calm place on earth? No. But hmm. No, there's I mean there's big sporting events on Olympics when it comes mm-hmm. over. But yeah, there's I can't think of any big cultural I'm trying to think even mm. in Asia in general, what are people, big festivals? Yeah, like I'm thinking Japan or Thailand or like neighboring South Korea, neighboring countries and things. What, yeah, what do we go? <laughs> what are we doing? Do we just relax when we leave? So we're expats in the 1920s in Paris more adventurous than we are. No, there's just, there honestly is more of that kind of stuff. Spain in particular is huge in the festivals. So, I mean, I I also, I lived in the Valencia area and there's Fias, which is also another crazy, crazy, I mean, exciting, but crazy festival. So they basically, they make these huge sort of paper mache, that's probably not what it's made of, but these gigantic, like two, three story things that a lot of times make political statements or ironic, they're, they're gorgeous. And and those are built by these sort of associations. So people are in these things that also do things all year round. I think they do charitable things and stuff. And so they get put up in different neighborhoods over this period of time. And then every day for 10 days or something, there's this mascaletta, which is this crazy, I was gonna say fireworks, but no firecrackers. I mean, they actually really warn you to be careful because you can go quite deaf and it goes off for like 15, 20 minutes. And then at the end, the festival festival part is when they burn down those things. So literally the evening of it. We were there for the beginning parts of it in Valencia once, but we actually did it another town, Dania, they have one and we did the whole deal that that night and day. And you just go around and they they put fireworks in them and then they burn as firemen are always right there with hoses because it's very easy for a house or a tree or anything to catch on fire because it's a two, three story fire. And you're all standing around watching it. And it's just, it's just wild. And there, there's Tomatina, whatever it's called. You know that one in Spain where they throw tomatoes? Yeah. You know, it, oh, Spain okay. loves its wild festivals. There's the water one in Thailand. Oh, yes. How could we not think of that? Yeah, yeah, Well, I've never yeah. lived there. Yeah, I haven't. <laughs> I've yeah, just either. talked to people who, yeah. who uh, have talked about song, it. Song something. Song yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I was thinking there are, and there are like big, like I thought of Diwali, Diwali in India. It's a religious festival, but there's big, you know, festivals. And when I lived in Taiwan in 2009, 
2003. I don't know how it is now because I know the fireworks thing is definitely mm-hmm. dampened in, in mainland China, mm-hmm. at least in the tier one cities. It's gotten really hard to do your own fireworks, which is probably a good thing. But when I lived in Tainan, Taiwan, down in the south near Kaohsiung, it's not something I did because I already had a firecracker experience as a child every year. So I was like, I don't need to touch them. I'm just going to look at them. So I went to my roof and looked and literally all around during a uh, Lunar New Year, all around, with just tons of firecrackers everywhere. Just you could just like see 360, just every everywhere. But that wasn't, yeah. But that was more lower to the ground, and it wasn't a like a planned parade or anything. You're in Shanghai when we first got here. Before they didn't hadn't banned the fireworks yet, and I remember the first two. Maybe three years. We traveled, but we were here on either the first night, either New Year's Eve, which is the night, or the like Lantern Festival night, or which is the other right. night. Day crazy, and I remember it was until almost three a.m. when I and if I hadn't lived in Valencia before, mm-hmm. I would have been terrified. But I was like, <laughs> I'm moving from firework culture to firework culture. This is great, and I was I actually felt like I'm home, you know, it, which is not my home culture. But and used they used to put every Saturday weddings, you know, you would see the fire. They would do the firecrackers. They would have the ritual and stuff. So a lot of that has been cleaned up here. Chinese New Year was, I mean, it's still a big festival, but it's just kind of some of those pieces have gone away. It's you know the family part and the travel is still there. And they did a huge thing on the buns. They used to do a big fireworks thing, so they did have a sort of central they had a light show this year yeah. didn't they now they do light shows but they used to do fireworks right. full fireworks and yeah and it was yeah it was fun. and the lion dancing you know but a lot of that you probably see more in non-big cities in mainland china and you see it i mean i've been abroad several times during chinese new year and seen more celebrations in chinatowns in australia or wherever me too i've definitely seen although in, in taiwan there were a lot of mini ones like it would just be some well what i thought was a random day and i'd be biking to work or something and i'd see like four or five people doing a dragon dance thingy that I'm sure was connected to some event on the calendar, on the lunar calendar. And it just all the time, you would see that just on a random street. And I'm slightly shocking to come to mainland China and never see that. I've seen it in hotels. In the last few years, I've seen it only in malls. (laughs) They pretty much all, it's like obligatory for them to have it. So if you want to see it. The burning of the money for like the gods and whatnot in Vietnam and in Taiwan. But I don't, I don't think, have I seen it here? Do they do that here? Yeah, it's, it's also calm down a little bit or whatever. But um, yeah, I used to live by the big temple in Laoshimen and it's funeral street. So they also sell all the things you can burn. It's definitely not to the extent anymore that it, like I was in Vietnam for Chinese New Year and, you know, the traditions are more prevalent still. But on that street, you would still be able to buy that stuff, I think, even though Laoshimen yeah. and do it and people would do it pretty regularly for there. There yeah. were entire streets in Hanoi where you could buy the, the lucky money to burn. And, yeah. and again, a certain day every month, they would have... You'd see just these tiny, maybe one foot tall things that they would burn them in. And you just, you couldn't breathe that day because you'd just be going down the street and everybody was burning their lucky money for whatever thing was happening that day. And now that I'm saying all of these things, I'm remembering funerals in Hanoi were pretty intense too, because if you heard like a a serious, like low humming with like a banging sound, Mm -hmm. you knew you were in for it for like three or four days sound wise, because they would do this very long, everybody who's ever known the person who just passed away would come to the residence during this time period and they would play this very low banging music for days while this was happening and i don't know all the details of it just sound wise you knew uh uh-oh time for a mini break time to like stay at a friend's house because it was just very loud and you wouldn't want to say excuse me could you stop your tradition to honor someone that just died because why would you say that (laughs) right right? (laughs) right
Hello, and welcome to The Keep. My name is Dylan C., and I'm the Night Reader. Would you join me? Mind your head, I've a lamp lit through the doorway. There, on the round table. Go on, have a seat. I've prepared a wonderful story for you. I like to take a look at inspiration as a whole and what moves us as humans towards physical action. My literary analysis and inspirational podcast is about just that. It's full of new and upcoming artists, writers, young influencers, and long-standing figures of motivation. I move through difficult texts and interpret them in a way that anyone can understand, as well as adding my personal flavor of voiced characters and musical themes to the mix. This is a show where you can educate yourself, learn about yourself, feel inspired to follow your own passion, share your writings, poetry, relax, and enjoy some stories. The round table has enough room for all those who are willing. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Also follow me on Instagram, and I welcome you to join me on the Night Reader Podcast. But I'm thinking all of these things are us kind of looking at the local culture. Is that what the characters in this book were doing on the places and experiences that they were seeing and doing? I think to an extent, but I think Hemingway was a bit more immersed in it. That's why he was the aficionado. He can he could he was reading the regular bullfighting magazines like every day. He would get those. So I think that's a different level. There are expats probably that you've known in China that have been really into martial arts or even become teachers of certain traditional things in China. So I mean, people do that. His other friends were just interested in drinking and saying yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, we don't know much about, dare I say, hobbies or interests outside of each other and fishing. Fishing, yeah. fishing. They were sporty types, for sure. Part of that might be me reading into it, knowing Hemingway was like a sporty guy, but with the fishing and that, I feel like they were pretty sporty types. That fishing part... It was two of them, right? It was Jake and Jake and Bill. Yeah, right? because yeah. I think Robert was supposed to go, but he wanted to wait around for Brett. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. He was quite entranced. <laughs> <laughs> and they were very, oh gosh, no, horrible analogy coming. Those really bad Grey's Anatomy episodes. <laughs> they would not have the female characters and just go on this like slightly far away from Seattle adventure with the men episodes that were really, really boring. That's what that part of the book felt like to me, <laughs> except for the cute, intimate parts where they're were like, I love you, man, kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the fishing part wasn't as much of interest to me either. What inspired them to go fishing? How did that even happen? That was just part of what they wanted to do along the trip, I think. It's interesting because they are, for the most part, working, but they obviously have extremely flexible jobs. I mean, I know they're journalists, so it is yeah. flexible somewhat, but it's it's very flexible. They have a lot of free time. Yes. <laughs> and just judging from the amount that they drank, they must have had a lot of free time to sober up. So that kind of doubles <laughs> the amount of free time that they must have had. Yeah, you don't see them being at the office at 7 a.m. or anything like no, that. No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> I don't think their employers were aware of how much they were not working <laughs> or they didn't care. I mean, I guess it's it's the type of job. I mean, the journalists and the writers there, the type of job, it's more about output. And Hemingway, who was like this in real life, he, his output is amazing. So I guess I've, the results are there. <laughs> 
the rest doesn't matter. And it was definitely a different time in terms of work culture. I mean, it was a time when you could have a boozy lunch and those kind of things were part of, you know, the culture and the... Yeah. So were they non-digital nomads? Yeah, sort of. Very recently read News Is My Job, an American woman in China, and she talks about journalist, and she talks about not Morse code. What is the other thing? Oh, like tele- telegraph? I think so. Yeah, it might be. And wiring, definitely. But I don't know if that at that time. So I think, yeah, they were using the wires. Like her directions from her superiors were very choppy. Those might have been Morse code because it was like yeah. find out about or this person's name and then find out like that kind yeah, of like yeah tele- telegraph and but hers were longer stories and so yeah i imagine how were they sending their stuff back that's yeah, about the same were, time period. yeah wiring it and that was one interesting thing about this book with hemingway is he had written a first draft which he didn't like anyway but that and a whole bunch of other work that got lost well no i think it was stolen but it was a suitcase full of a bunch of his stuff because again back then right they did do carbon copies but mm-hmm. there was something about it included all the carbon copies or there was some reason why it was there was not that so it was interesting about the carbon copies because i thought okay they did they did do that so they would have copies but yeah different a different world in terms terms of I shudder to think I lose one file and I go crazy and I can't even fathom an entire suitcase full of work just gone and the research processes and things like that back then would be yeah different my heart just sank a little I do remember in one documentary on the lost and recent that I saw ages and ages ago on YouTube and I'll put it in the show notes and all that kind of good stuff they talked about some of the lost generation folks wrote about their life in whatever places in, in Paris and whatnot and some of them wrote about home and there was definitely a split. Like people usually didn't write about both. Mm-hmm. And Hemingway clearly fell into the writing about the the new place mm-hmm. kind of thing. Do you think that not just in writing, but in content stuff that you consume from expats, do you think they still fall into those two camps? I feel like there are people that write about sort of aspects of missing home and repatriation stuff, but that also write about the place. I don't know. What do you? What have you? Observed. You probably absorb a lot more content than I do. I absorb a lot, but I intentionally look for stuff that's new. So if I think my answer would be biased because if I see someone writing about their home and it's the US, I'd probably Uh, tune out and go find somebody else who's writing about a different country that I don't know about. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not sure that I would be an unbiased source for that. But oh, there is a YouTuber that I watch and he, it was really funny though. Austin in China, I believe is his YouTube video. And when his father came to visit him, Mm -hmm. he did an Asian potato chip tasting with his dad. Okay. And it was really cute because you could see Austin's reaction and his taste buds have changed. Right. And you could see his dad just like, what is this? (laughs) Kind of thing. Dad was such a trooper because he didn't say no to the durian or the lobster chips or any of the like flavors that he'd never seen before. And he was just like, no, no, he did it. He did every single one of them. But it was cute to have all of his comparisons were back in Texas. Okay. And Austin's comparisons were kind of a mix between Mm. local flavors and where he was living and Texas a little bit of texas too but so i've seen some of that but the vast majority of stuff that i watch and listen to is about the host countries and stuff yeah i guess sometimes people use reference points especially when they're first in a place maybe they do comparisons a bit but otherwise talking about home which i think would I think, I don't know, we'll have to seek it out and see if we can find more of that. Because I think it's very interesting, the perspective we get on our home countries Mm -hmm. living abroad. Oh, yeah. And then also the perspective and how it might change over time. And then also the perspective that you have on a country as a non-citizen 
that I always, a lot of times I would sort of be a little dismissive of it or of myself to Chinese friends and say like, well, it's not my culture. You know, you could probably tell me more. And then they would say, actually, you have a, not a better perspective, but you have a different perspective that is in some ways has some different kind of insights. And I was like, oh, okay, I do have a, a, you know, something (laughs) to offer. Yeah, you have the advantage of of coming in and learning it, whereas they go, it's the same thing with American culture. Some people bring up stuff and I'm like, oh, yeah, we yeah, yeah, you're, I'm right. not going to fight that. That's probably true. <laughs> right. You very much gain that awareness when you leave about the things that we, I think we were talking about this the other day at Podcast Brunch Club, we were talking about use of hands and eating. And I, when you're living in the country that you live in, you don't ever think that something about that is, could be unusual, or there'd be a reason not to do it. And then you come somewhere and then you say, oh, actually, this makes sense. And why do we do it that way? Yeah, that was a really interesting discussion because they were talking about I don't actually go to KFC in Shanghai, but they were talking about in KFC, I guess if you get the chicken that's not the nuggety ones or whatever, I don't know, if they, if you get chicken, you get the plastic gloves. Yes. And I had seen the plastic gloves like in Korean restaurants when you get like the spicy chicken. Mm-hmm. And I assumed it was the spice. They didn't want you to get the spice on your hands and then rub your eyes and that kind of yeah. thing. But they were saying with any chicken at KFC, you get the gloves. Have you seen this? That's what I was saying. It's not just messy stuff like yeah. pizza. If you go to a lot of pizza places, it's sort of evolving now. But in the past, it, I mean, a Chinese person would not pick up their pizza with their hands. I mean, which a lot of us cut it with knife and fork. Yeah. But they would sometimes, they, if they didn't have gloves, they would use a napkin or something. It, and various snack foods that we get at our office. I mean, there's gloves. That's where I all of a sudden it struck me. This is so smart. If I haven't had the ability to go wash my hands or something, this works well. And also afterwards, my hands aren't messy. And almost every food, there's some degree of mess. My North American boss in Taiwan, it's him and his Taiwanese wife that ran the school. The first time I saw him eating potato chips with chopsticks, I thought, man, you've been here too long. What the heck are you doing? And then he handed me one. And I had to go wash my hands because I got, you know, all the goo on me. And he's just sitting there and keep he keeps going. Then he could do something and then he'd come back to it. And I was like, I'm done. My idea is clearly wrong. You are you are superior to me in every way. <laughs> that is a brilliant way to eat potato chips and not have the goo all over the yeah. goo and the, the grit and all that stuff all over you. Yeah. And I found myself just like grabbing for chopsticks, like kind of looking at something and going, not even just the germ part of it, because I'm terrible when it comes to that, but the residue part of it. Mm-hmm. I do find myself reaching for chopsticks and going, this is just going to be cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where it was interesting, because here we were analyzing it. And a lot of the the foreigners had yeah. obviously thought about it and, yeah. you know, molded over in their heads. And so the que- question got turned around to a couple of the Chinese folks that were there. Okay, so is it because of the germs? Or is it because of the mess? And they kind of they had to think about it because they don't analyze it because it's just you know normal and so that is where that different perspective comes in because you don't all the things that we do every day in the U.S. we wouldn't we wouldn't have a reason to analyze it. That's so true. It's so true, and it's usually the little things like the giant things. Uh, it's too hard to generalize on those big things because then you do have variations, but those little things are so important. Okay, wait. Okay, so Jake was an American. Yes. Mike was Irish. Brett was. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I was thinking of this earlier today and I was going, is Brett American? It's definitely a mix. It's supposed to be a mixture of British and American expats, but I'm not sure who was what. (laughs) Robert was American because he was the boxer in university. Yeah. Yeah. So Romero was clearly Spanish. Bill Mm -hmm. was, he was American, was he? I think. Um, See, now I'm going by the accents in the audiobook. So William Hurt might be leading me astray. Sorry, William. (laughs) Oh, interesting. So where is Brett from? 
Well, I mean, she definitely has some connection outside of the U.S. because you don't become a lady in the U.S. Exactly. So, so maybe she's the she British component? Yeah. And this is still <laughs> ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> or we're just bad readers. <laughs> no. no, I, no there's no. definitely an ambiguity to her nationality. I'm really going to be curious to read the book, the podcast I sent you, that was the book called behaving badly or something oh my gosh let's talk about that because that was an amazing find um which podcast name was that and yes it'll be in the show notes but let's do it verbally i mean there's several reasons i'm curious to read it but what we're talking about now ties in a bit in that she saw a picture of the the real lady brass and that's kind of what sparked her writing the book and so i thought the backstory of the characters would be helpful Uh, you know the real life characters So even though that's not all the book is about, but I know she does cover that a lot. And the yeah, the book is called Everybody Behaves Badly, The True Story Behind Hemingway's Masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises by Leslie Bloom. Oh, here we go. Yes. The Art of Manliness. It was episode 219, The Real Life Story of Hemingway and the Sun Also Rises. So that's yeah. the thing that sparked the interest. Actually, turns out to be also a YouTube channel that my husband watches. <laughs> That's cool. Which I had no idea. I was like, what are you watching? Like, he said it was much more, not instructional, but like mini bits of, sounds like testosterone kind of stuff. Okay. I don't know. Manliness, I haven't watched it. Bits of manliness. It is manliness. The one thing I remembered we messaged each other about mm-hmm. was about the idea of sort of Hemingway as the brand, quote unquote brand, using yes. modern terminology. Yeah, yeah. Because versus, when they did, oh no, wait, when they were publicizing the book, they didn't put the book cover, they used his his profile his mm-hmm. picture basically because he already had a reputation in the community mm-hmm. and people knew him so he was he was branded already yeah he was completely and they <laughs> yeah. said you know his lifestyle mm-hmm. and sportiness and all these different war here all these things about him became and i, I thought about it i thought really i've read a lot of hemingway actually i looked you know in wikipedia or something and saw and i realized i have there's a lot i haven't read but i feel like he's this author that i've read so much of and know so well but it's because i know his persona i've gone to his houses i've you know if you've gone to any of the places he lived you've gone to the bars that he's gone to you know i i know much more about him than his writing actually and there's little pieces of him all over the place like even the last line in the book somebody was talking about in one of the podcasts i listened to today they were talking about they didn't know that was him but they knew a book that was titled that yes i was like oh my gosh he's just everywhere just little bits and bobs of his work have gone into our brains in different ways yeah yeah he's had a lot of influence but i did think that was quite interesting i mean they didn't say back then they weren't he wasn't a brand I mean, we'll have to read it and see yeah. how cool it really is, but it sounds, and I just love the title, Everybody Behaves Badly. It, you think about this book and then you hear that it just sounds, yeah. yeah. And just kind of effortless. And yeah. the whole discussion, I got about halfway through the wow. the interview and the whole discussion, she's just talking about the curiosity and going down the Hemingway rabbit hole yeah. and going down a specific part of it. And to the point where she had a friend of hers who accidentally ran across like a box of stuff that had like letters or something or Mm. something and they called her because they knew she was interested wow (laughs) she was like she broke open like a bottle of wine that night and was like this is a find and it's like holy cow wow (laughs) just amazing just that whole curiosity vibe and just following the curiosity and that's what led to the book and so yeah it sounds like an amazing 
amazing book. Yeah, I have, I have a bit of a Hemingway obsession, so I think I'll have to follow that. <laughs> but but that's where I realized I, I feel that I have a Hemingway obsession. Mm-hmm. But yet, when I looked at that canon of his works, I thought, I have not read as much of this as I feel I have because of following him around to his houses and, you know, watching movies about him and all the things that are more about him. There is a very strong possibility that you're more interested in his life than in his work. That's back to that thing about his brand. That's why I think this book is cool because it just basically is his life. And I think he ties that in with a lot of a lot of the stories he writes. There's a lot of tie in with his life. Yeah. So I think... Yeah, you know, he's an interesting guy. He's a very interesting <laughs> guy. I, I want to hit the houses and bars thing because we did have some information oh, yeah. on that too. But I rewatched uh, Midnight in Paris, Woody yes. Allen's movie that's, would you say based on the character? Uh, well, it has an author who's kind of obsessed with Hemingway also. And yeah, I mean, it, it ties in yeah. with Hemingway in general, at least, yeah. and all the people of that era. And I rebushed. I only got about halfway through because my internet kept cutting out last night. <laughs> but I thought the Hemingway character was hilarious. I feel like he took it to a very, very extreme, matter-of-factly manliness that I think was even harsher than than Jake in the book. Yeah, it was a yeah. little character-esque in that movie, I thought. Yeah. Though it hit the mannerisms and the way he spoke. But you got the whole way through it again recently, yep. didn't you? What do you think now that you've read The Sun Also Rises? And well, what it? I thought was interesting about the movie that I had forgotten is kind of the moral of the story, which is that we're always the golden age nostalgia because then they go back and the person that's from the 20s, they go back further and she realizes she wants to stay and he yeah. says, no, but I'm... And I thought, oh, okay, a little guilty. I'm a little guilty of that. But I don't really have golden age nostalgia. What I want is what they did in the movie, which is to go back, but not to go back and live. And I'm often very nostalgic for that exact period, the 20s or the 30s in Shanghai. We talked once about when you would want to flashback to. And now after living here, I don't know, I'd be torn because the 20s Paris, that would be cool. But now after living here so long, the 30s in Shanghai before before the war, because it was much that same, like it was the jazz age, the glamour, the glitz, but also the once, danger and right. And once yeah. you've seen, and I say that, but that was a very specific, but the French concession, I mean, very colonial. I'm not, I'm not trying to say it was all great, but I think seeing that and, it, and plus so much architecture in Shanghai stands. It's a city that's shockingly full of the, that time period still. And so having gone to a lot mm-hmm. of those places, I think it would be really interesting. I mean, I live on the old racetrack, you know, I live by the Park Hotel. I would love to see people doing their their dance. They used to have a, a ballroom there that opened up to the night. I would love yeah. to see them having, you know, their ballroom dancing there. So, I would like to time travel, but I don't think I would want to live in another time. Unless no. there was a future time with a lot of our really bad things sorted out. <laughs> that's a good, that's, that's a good terrible. one. Terrible, yeah. But especially as a woman, I really no. wouldn't want to long-term go back to any other time period. For sure. Yeah, these these time periods, that's I would go for a visit, but they definitely would not. And and even for the people that had the privilege then, there were I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff going on around and yeah, and some no. things are just physically unavoidable if you're in certain time periods. Like I think the woman who he had a, a crush for that wanted to go back to the 1900s, his whole deal breaker was that the was it the penicillin thing that there was no he didn't mention yeah. <laughs> He's like, well, no, I'm not living here. They don't have that. I could die like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, just multiply that times a million for women and childbirth and X, Y, and Z that could go wrong and just, duh, no. 
No, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that part was interesting, but I definitely, it, it did give me a lot of the feelings seeing those eras in the book, uh, in the movie gave me a lot of the feelings of the book. Uh, puts kind of the picture, you know, behind it and that, that era of the, but again, it's like, Movies and books. I mean, they're not showing the part where they are, where Hemingway was sitting there toiling over his writing. He wasn't, it wasn't all drinking in bars and fun, but that's what movies and stuff show. They don't show your daily grudge. We probably wouldn't read it or watch it if it was that. Yeah. And it's much like today, social media, we show that side of ourselves. And as expat, I think that's the tie in I'll make with expats is that as an expat or geopat or person that lives outside their passport country. But also people tend to think you have this great life when you have maybe a lot of challenges and a lot of, but you're, again, posting on social media, oh, I went to Bali, I went to this place, you know, there's this is a cool cultural thing, because you don't post about, you know, oh, I spent, well, I mean, sometimes you do, but I spent four hours at the bank today, and I had to go run around, you know, so people, <laughs> the life. I do, but honestly, that that quote-unquote bad stuff happens a lot less often. Yeah, especially very true. Yeah, especially in Northeast Asia when there's so much freaking cute around and so much <laughs> beautiful and so much life is spent outside. Yes. On the streets, it's so easy to walk down the street and get 10 different videos or pictures or things that are things that are interesting and cool and bright and shiny and lovely than it is to, I mean, you only have to go to the bank so often. You only have to right. go renew your visa and things so often. So it's... <sighs> It's hard. I, like I try to have both of those, but then it's it's like, well, I don't want to make up stuff that's bad, right? To even it out. Yeah, it's not that bad, really. And also, you, yeah, you don't want to. As a person, we don't. I mean, it's not great to dwell on anything that's negative, and it is small in comparison. So it's, it is. I mean, just today, I'm so floored by this. You can tell that I'm about to leave because I I went I went cute. I went in for some vegetables at City Shop in their pre-made area, and I ended up with this video of these little ducks that have oh. taro inside of them. So I love those. They come in sets of two. And one of the the set that was outside had a perfectly formed beak on both of them. Oh. But the ones she tried to give me had, it, they were kind of flattened out oh. and squished. And I was like, oh, heck no. I know I'm not going to enjoy the taste of these things. So oh. I want them to be cute while I'm eating them, which is kind of gross to think about. <laughs> but I was like, this is such a, this is such a Northeast Asian thing for me. Like, I can't imagine having that experience, you know, next year in Germany where I'm right. like, I, I want this duck taro filled bun. Like, what? No, yes. it's going to taste good, whatever I'm eating there, but it's not really going to have that layer of cuteness on it. And I was like, I must make a video. <laughs> oh, like when I go back and visit, they say, oh, are you having fun traveling? And I'm like, I'm not traveling. Right. <laughs> I'm like, I live there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I think that impre the impression we have of them in the book, now this all is coming clear to me. Of course, we have that impression. It's the impression some similar to what someone's saying to you. Oh, are you just traveling? So we think... Their life is all this leisure. And I mean, there definitely is seems to be more of it because even when they're back working, there's definitely more free time. And it, it was a different situation in those times too with the pace of life. But but they're never talking about, wait, what are, are they ever talking about anything? Because <laughs> we see them drinking together. Like yeah. he describes them drinking together. But do they ever talk about anything they do in their time away from that moment? No, he's not big on 
dialogue in the sense of he's big on very practical dialogue and funny dialogue, but not di- not to have long diatribes about philosophy or something. Yeah, it's yeah. not. I think that's part of the style that he developed was that that modernist. And normally ambiguity drives me crazy, but I found myself just like nibbling on the ambiguity and just like pausing every half hour and going, I just want to think about what what I just heard. And I was loving how open the things that were happening were, which is very uncharacteristic for me. Yeah, he does a really good job with it. Uh, There's something about that style. And I guess it doesn't seem that unusual now, but it was so weird at the time. This was all new way of writing for, for novels. Anyway. Okay, I didn't read Farewell to Arms, but that's his, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, but yeah. isn't that all about the war? That's a war novel, yeah. Yep. Have you read that one? A long time ago. Okay. But yeah, I think he, I, there was something, maybe I made a note of it, there was something that was talking about how he wanted to, oh, he believed a writer should create an absolute truth out of fiction that feels so real it becomes a shared experience with the reader. And I do feel like he does a good job with that you feel like you're there and you're not it's not going on these different tangents and stuff but definitely and the and the human relationships as few as they are as few characters as there are they're very real his his back and forth with brett (laughs) feels very almost sam and diane from cheers (laughs) there's a long ago reference (laughs) but but many sitcoms and tv shows and and popular movies and things like that have that same we should be together, but we're not going to be together for a lot of the piece. And then fortunately or unfortunately at the end in American pieces, they generally get together and we're like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's a happy ending. Should we spoil it? I think it's pretty well known. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, they do not get together. But that final, at the end, it's Brett and Jake and Brett runs off with the bullfighter, Romero, and then runs out of money or kicks him out or both. Yeah, kicks him out and then has has nothing. Yeah. So she calls for Jake to come in and save her. But he doesn't have a lot of money either. But he goes to save her. And I don't even know what that means. But they're talking about it. And she's like, oh, we could have blah, 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 been together. Or something like that. And I thought she was talking about her and Jake. Uh, but I was listening to something today and somebody was saying she was talking about her and Romero. Uh, but but Jake said, isn't it pretty to think so? Uh, okay. I think I may have misinterpreted that. I thought they okay. were both talking about the two of them. Okay. But they were talking about two different things. I don't know. Oh, okay. Is that open to interpretation? How did you interpret Maybe. that? I don't remember about that part. I just remember thinking he he's in that perpetual situation. He's always going to come rescue her, but they're never going to be together. It's kind of his place that he's going to be stuck in, and he's willingly going along with it. He's making the choice. It's quite, it's quite a sad story from his perspective, but he's also choosing. I mean, that's what he, yeah. how he wants it to be. So, I mean, he would choose it probably not to be another way, but given the circumstances, he does. He he's going to continue yeah. being there for her no matter what. Who is it that's pushing the other away? Is it really? Because in the taxi at the beginning, it felt like it was it was both of them saying we can't. Yeah, I think it is both. I think he w- is pushing her away because he doesn't want, he knows she's this free soul. I think it's more him almost. And there was something that someone mentioned also that reminded me. He talked about when the, when whoever it was, was it Robert? Wanted him to go to Argentina or somewhere in South, or somewhere in South America. And he 
kept refusing. He had this line where he said, you can't run away from yourself. Mm-hmm. You can't go to a place to escape yourself. Or so. And then they were, they were in, it was in the other podcast. I think they were saying, is he, you know, that's exactly he, what they did. <laughs> that's what they did the whole time. Right. And it's funny. And that, that's another thing that, because how you started this uh, podcast was talking about co- threads with, do we see anything? And that's a a huge thing that comes up in geopat life, Mm -hmm. where people will say, people either will be running away from stuff, or they'll think, they'll realize they can't run away from themselves, or people will kind of dismiss people and say that that's what the person is doing when really they're not. I think especially people that don't go elsewhere, people that are home will say, and uh, I do some work with some psychologists here. And so I've, I've helped them write a number of articles that relate to this topic about people, actually, the quite the opposite being true, where it's sort of, you're stripped sort of of a lot of the cultural things that cushioned you back home. So all of a sudden, you're left with yourself and relationships also really come to a head. And it's not because you're thrown in a new culture per se, it's because everything you're here and you don't have those friends and family that you can sort of hide behind. So yeah, it's really, it magnifies things. Yeah. yeah. So you can't <laughs> what is that horrible say? No matter where you go, there you are. I had so many people throw that at me. And I'm like, yeah, of course I'm there. My backpack's there. What's the problem? <laughs> like, what, what are you trying to say to me? It's truly the place I don't like. I'm going to go over there because that's more interesting to me. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's interesting. So the other stuff falls away and we're more ourselves outside. There are some people that try to use it right, to hide and they think it's going to work and yep. it generally doesn't. Yeah. And there's there can be some escapism just like in their life. They're obviously escaping through drinking. But I think... That, yeah, your self is always there no matter what. So it's quite interesting. Yeah. And maybe that's part of some people's culture shock is when that that protection of the familiarity stripped away and they see themselves, it's kind of like, whoa, what's what's going on here? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I I think definitely so. Because things like, I mean, different people do it in different ways, but we, you know, we work a lot to get away from ourselves. We do whatever. And so, for example, you're working a lot and then you're the partner that comes along and maybe isn't the one that's working. Well, that's a big, it's not just because it's a change. It's because it maybe takes away something that you, you know, was distracting you. Well, let's wrap up with the, the physicalness of Hemingway's uh, touch shall we say? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you've been to a number of his houses around the world. Yeah. (laughs) How how many are there that can be visited and how many have you gone to so far? I don't know how many there are. I've been to Key West, which he spent a lot of time there, and uh, Cuba, Havana. And I think that's it. And then... The, Havana, the one in Cuba, I would highly recommend if you're if anyone's traveling there to go. It's really cool. It's so well preserved with all his stuff and his books and his paintings wow. and yeah. And you can go up to his little writing nest and feel like Hemingway because his little typewriter's there and you can think, oh, he's up here writing. But apparently, there he did also do way more drinking than writing. I think it was a time in his life. I think that was when he ended up getting divorced. I don't know. But uh, it's really cool, really worth seeing. Yeah. Have you visited any Hemingway spots? Um, Just one bar completely by accident. Um, (laughs) I do like, I've only read one other book and... What is the sea? A man in the sea. Old man in the sea. I I think think everybody read that for school, right? No, I actually read it in my twenties by accident. 
I think it was that one, but I'm not sure. And I didn't even go back to check because I don't know. I really liked the, this book this t- at this moment in time. And part of me doesn't want to go back in case. I don't know. I don't I don't want to push it. But um but my husband is very much so into I'm not sure if it's the books or the persona. But he used to when he went and did his coffee shop thing in different countries that we lived in, he'd say I'm going to go do my Hemingway thing and he would just disappear for a few hours and go and write and reflect and sometimes drink, but mostly coffee because we met pretty late in our in our lives together. So, um, but yeah, he would just say, I'm going to go do my Hemingway thing. And I'm like, yeah, okay, bye. And it, it didn't even dawn on me because it was such a huge part of just, it, it feels like Hemingway is just everywhere. So it didn't even dawn on me. But when we were in Spain a couple of years ago, he took me to one of the bars that he went to. And I think there was even a plaque there that said that or something, but it was really, I think I mentioned, I sent you the name of the bar, didn't I? I don't think we want to say the name of the bar considering what I'm about what's, to say. Though. What's it in Pamplona or a different? It was in Madrid. Oh, okay. In Madrid. Okay. And it was this dark place down in a basement. Oh, was it a cave bar? Because they're big in Madrid. Or... It wasn't a cave oh, bar. Okay. It was pretty nondescript. I mean, it was it was stylish to an extent, but it, it obviously had seen better days. It was kind of a little run, run down and that kind of thing. And I mean, the main poll was he wanted to have a drink there because Hemingway had a drink there. And I was like, I'm cool. Let's do it. Let's go. (laughs) But the funny thing that happened is (laughs) like halfway through my drink, I realized there's this gigantic spider, like really skinny spider (laughs) in my drink. Oh, gosh. And I was like, and he was so skinny. And it was like a a white, what did I get? I think I got a martini. So it was clear. So I don't know how I didn't see it at the beginning. Wow. But I just kind of went, ah, okay, that's cool. I'm like, this is kind of ominous, but you know, whatever. (laughs) Very Hemingway-esque. Yeah, we went to, well, we didn't actually go in, but in in Havana, they have Bodega Bodega del Medio. Mm -hmm. Did you know that was in Shanghai at one point? They opened a branch. So it's such a strange. It's such strange no. what opens in Shanghai, Shanghai that <laughs> from other countries, isn't it weird? And this Cuban bar, it doesn't have any other branches anywhere else, and it opened, but it already failed here. So it's got, now <laughs> it's a huge it? German bar. It was by Hangshan Lu, by that Yongping, that little yeah. development there where Kolka and some other restaurants are. So it's this huge <laughs> restaurant. Now it's a German place. It's the Oh. It, it's got to be an amazingly expensive piece of real estate because it's got two stories and but it, unike the one in Havana where it's a tiny little hole in the wall and that was his absolute favorite place and then there's another bar which I can't remember the name of which I think is where his he sort of invented not I don't know he kind of got them up on the idea of the daiquiri yeah and that we went to and I can't remember the name but that we went to but the bodiguita del media in, in Havana it's you can't really even get near it i mean it's packed people are just you know it's such a tourist hot spot yeah. and because it's so small the yeah. other one you could get into and get a table every now and then they played music and but those are only two of many i'm sure that he spent time in wow <laughs> just wow yeah there there's probably a list somewhere of like bars that hemingway drank it <laughs> and the distinction between drank in once and spent a lot of time in right, <laughs> right. <laughs> if we were bringing this back to the very unfair comparison between the lost generation in Paris and expats in Asia, which is way too big of a population. <laughs> Are there any other similarities or stark differences? I think the only thing I can think of right now is I feel like if we take Shanghai as a micro something microcosm of this, 
I feel like there's a lot of different reasons why foreigners are in mm. were here mm-hmm. versus the lost generation. I think was more of a singular focus. Yeah, yeah it was more uni- they, they and they were in general much more uniform yeah. then. I think uh, you know the diverse. I mean, okay, so he and his friends were American and British, but that was about it. It wasn't a lot of different nationalities. It wasn't. They were all sort of the same class, whether they were poor at the moment or not. So there's definitely more uniformity. And I think that's changing more in recent years with geopaths. It's it also it, for many years it's been more uniform, and now it's changing. And Shanghai especially has changed, even in the years we've been here, in terms of being more diverse in the reasons people yeah. come. Yeah, I mean, just off the top of my head, let's see. Can we think of reasons why people are here to study? Mm-hmm. Um, foreigners in Chinese universities is increasing, especially African students from different countries in yeah. Africa studying in China, working. Uh, but working in many different kinds of jobs. Yeah, not always being brought over by a big corporation or, yeah. or you know, being on local contracts, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, and unlike in Japan where you have to be, even if you're incredibly fluent, you're not as likely to get into a Japanese company. You're like kind of restricted to teaching English on many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, in China, if you're fluent in the language, you can work in any company as long as you're qualified to do so. Right. So that's the full range. Are there still volunteer opportunities or NGOs or things like that? Yeah, there are some, but a lot of people come with a spouse or something because the visa thing. Right. Is, and I know a lot of people in Shanghai that are entrepreneurs. Yes, that's true. And more than I, I think it's definitely, it's really it, it, I wouldn't say it's unique because there are other places, mm-hmm. but it's definitely, I think we'll, we see more of it here than a lot of places. It's yeah. just such a land of opportunity for people to start businesses and come here and get ideas and do things. Yeah. And in many different industries too. Yeah. And then this is working, but also because of the book, I was going to say uh, journalists. Yeah. Yeah. Which is... Hmm. Are there, there many? No, there aren't many, but okay. there are, I've met some. And I mean, yeah. we both go to For foreign sure. correspondence club yeah. stuff. So we see that there are, but that is a small, yeah. smaller population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have met some other people that are, that are writers. Definitely. Either, yeah, writing books about yeah. China. I'm actually met a lot. Yeah. Uh, writing books about China, just here on a writing break. Mm-hmm. Some people that do business related writing. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of writing people, but that also we probably see more i probably see more of them because i do book clubs and literary and we yeah. do we do activities it, where you run into those people here. right there's a very strong book and literature and that kind of an art community in general here um, and then here you have returnees yes which is a different thing returnees mm-hmm. and people with heritage that come for that a lot of times for that being a big part of the reason mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. And I'm sure there was more than just this tiny population in Paris at that time that weren't born and raised there. But it, it in general, it feels like the variety of folks that are in the expat or geopet realm is much more varied now than 100 years ago. There was somewhere where I was reading where it was talking about the expat community in Paris at that time, yeah. which it, I, then I started to get golden age nostalgic. They, <laughs> they listed Miro, the artist, yeah. photographer Man Ray, yes. James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so very artsy, but that's who they were hanging out with. But also mm-hmm. I think that was a big part at Paris. That was the... Yeah place to go for those types and they all like yeah they all knew each other and yeah well it's it's funny because of an artist friend of mine years and years ago when she was in korea and i was in taiwan she was saying you know asia asia is the new 
um, the new place that starving artists go to do their thing and not have the complications of home and all these other things. And, and I've met so many content creators and writers and, and different artist types in these different areas. So I wonder, as I do the shift over to Europe, am I going to be like, where are y'all? What's <laughs> happening? How come you're just doing your regular day job? Come on, chop, chop. Where's your side project? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder if I'm going to feel that shift or if there's going to, well, it's Berlin. Though. Berlin, you be. will see a fair amount of it. But other places in Europe, I think less, definitely less than here. I think that... But it's changing because there is more of this digital world and this online. Yeah. So I know in when I was living in Spain, I wasn't live, planning to live there long term. So I was also not going out trying to meet people a lot. So I don't have right. a 100% view into it. But really, there was a very sort of homogeneous population of who was there. Mm-hmm. And it was more geared to the retiree and stuff. Yeah. And there was not much of this, definitely this entrepreneur creative mm-hmm. side. But I know I'm in I'm in a lot of groups still thinking I was going to eventually reconnect with Spain. And there's definitely little digital nomad communities. Mm-hmm. But they, they're I haven't gotten the sense that it's as much the creatives, but it, it probably, and for, for sure in Berlin, I think it would be yeah, more. Probably. We'll see. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Update. <laughs> oh, we didn't do the stuffed dog. <laughs> Should we end with the stuffed dog? I sure. think we both kind of landed on this part of the of the book separately and then laughed about it together. And then the Actually. other quote, we don't, we definitely don't have to read or play this one, but I think that we should refer people to since we're talking about expat geopat is there's a good quote about expatriates in the book. So I, I don't know that it's my favorite quote per se, but it's my favorite related to this uh, topic, I think. So it's uh, when Bill says, you're an expatriate, you've lost touch with the soil, you get precious, fake European standards have ruined you, you drink yourself to death, you become obsessed by sex, you spend all your time talking, not working, you're an expatriate, see, you hang around cafes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because mine's also from Bill. (laughs) He was in the book for such a short period of time and yet he had a big impact. Yeah. <laughs> so my, mine's more just downright silliness. They pass a, what is it called? Taxidermy uh, oh, yeah. store. Yeah. And he's, he, he's trying to convince Jake to buy a stuffed dog. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, maybe later. <laughs> and so Bill says, simple exchange of values. You give them money, they give you a stuffed dog. And then he goes on and on and on about how he's going to buy his friend's stuffed animals not the toy but the actual stuffed animals for different holidays and celebrations going forward <laughs> just like wow how what what came into Hemingway's moment or mind at that moment that he was like I need to put this yeah why he left there. that in there yeah of all <laughs> the funny. things that he took out out of the ex- exaggeratedly long version why did the stuffed dog moment stand but I guess it, he was a smart editor because we both it stood out. Oh, right? so I guess, yeah. 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 It was just such a funny moment. And I was just like, what? I think because it was so different than the rest of the book. Yeah. Yeah. So would you recommend this book? Yes. Would you read A Movable Feast, which apparently is the, I think the biographical version. The more directly. Part, yeah. yeah. I thought I had read it, but I don't, I don't think I have. Uh, yes. I want to read that and I want to read more of the other stuff that I realized I've missed of his. Yeah. Did for I? sure. Especially if William Hurt reads it. It was really sport. Seriously, if you guys are into Audible, I'm not, I think I have an affiliate, but I don't know where the code is. Honestly, I just really love audiobooks. And having William Hurt, who's one of my favorite actors, read it was like 
Yay. (laughs) An extra 25% of goodness on top of it. So definitely get that version. What about you? you Would you recommend it? I would. Although I I had such a sweet moment going through the book that I wonder if five years from now or five years ago, I would have liked it as much. Mm -hmm. Like I feel it might be a moment in time for me. And I don't know why. Because there's nothing in my life revolving around any of the places that they were in, in the book. But there's something really sweet about it. For for now, yes. Would I be offended if somebody hated it? No. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I would yeah. either, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, I wouldn't defend it with my life kind of thing. Like, some books I'd be like, no, for anybody, this is amazing. This, I don't know that it is. I, I think it's probably really good for some people. And I think folks would know in the first chapter or two if it's for them. And I think it's good to read because it's such a important novel and it's his first novel and stuff and definitely i have to say my bias goes way towards Hemingway over fitzgerald i'm not a big fitzgerald fan (laughs) like when they were talking about fitzgerald helping hemingway i was like yeah but hemingway's so much better (laughs) like he he like took it and then ran off in this other direction that was so much better (laughs) yeah so it it was yeah, that connection. I don't think Fitzgerald was a terrible writer by any stretch. I mean, clearly he wouldn't be in our consciousness if he was awful. It just doesn't strike a chord with me. Yeah. 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 We'll put the Not fighting so. words out there if anyone else is a yeah. giant uh, <laughs> fan of Fitzgerald. They can they can write nasty comments on Seriously? your podcast comments. <laughs> something if you're listening to this now and you want to contribute to this i'd be more than happy to put it in another mini episode so do send us your favorite or least favorite parts of this book or just general impressions if you want to read a quote anything related to the sun also rises or if you want to give us a teaser on a movable feast that would be cool too and then we'll put that into something (laughs) and hopefully um in the future possibly in different countries we'll do a movable feast episode That'd be cool. And see if our perspective, I mean, it'll be a different book, but also Mm -hmm. do our perspectives change when we're elsewhere? Are we flashing back to China? (laughs) Oh, that lends itself to we have to do it once we've both left. Sure. So yeah. That's good. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So coming in 2020, part two, a movable feast.
Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. You know what's wrong with health and fitness? You weaponize it against yourself. Why didn't you go to the gym today? You're so lazy. Ah, why did you eat that? You have no self-control. Stop it. At Beachbody, we think training and caring for your body in a way that works best for you should be about loving yourself. Let us help you without all the judgment. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.